Hello and welcome to the Zip Files, my mum's favourite weekly technology news catch-up show. This week, I'll be spooning the top 10 most interesting world of tech news bits into your ears, as per usual. We're talking about illegal drugs on social media sites, Tesla wasting ridiculous sums of cash, Amazon Alexa teaching kids manners, and much, much more. In between all that, we'll have a long listen on big data and why it's important we wrestle back control from the big guys. Of course... I'm just one boring bloke, so I've brought my flatmate along for the ride this week. My name is Roman. <laughs> I come from France. Really? I've been living in the UK for three years now. I like Spanish food. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. He's spoken for. All right, let's get all caught up with This Week in Tech. Granny, play Taylor Swift. Your technophile three-year-old granddaughter barks. What's the magic word, little human tiny girl? You sweetly respond. Granny, stop. Play Taylor Swift. The weather will be fine today. Highs of 16 degrees with cloud cover. You respond. The penetration of smart speaker digital assistants into our homes has raised concerns that children will develop rather brattish communication methods. When my mum speaks to her Amazon Alexa... She often throws in the customary pleases and thank yous. I only do if I'm feeling particularly lonely, but always please and thank humans. Little kids who learn to bark commands at digital assistants are likely to bark commands at humans. This is the generalised worry of detractors. Amazon have gone away to combat this manufactured rudeness and make sure our kids grow up to be nice and polite with their new magic word feature which rewards kids for using their pleases and thank yous. Thank you, Amazon. Microsoft acquired GitHub for $7.5 billion this week, a massive 30 times its annual recurring revenue. For the uninitiated, GitHub is basically Google Drive for developers. It's where we stick all of our code so that we and others can grab it, use it, work on it, and store it. To put the deal in context, a healthy multiple doesn't normally break 10 times annual recurring revenue. Microsoft's acquisition of LinkedIn for $26 billion in 2016 was 7.2x. This 30 times multiple is simply astronomical and shows just how much Microsoft values the strategic positioning of GitHub. The old Microsoft have been through rough times, but seem to be slowly heaving themselves out of an uninspired and buggy mire that has plagued them for many of the recent and not-so-recent years. This deal can be seen as somewhat of a giant undo button, a promise to be committed to developers and open source. Understandably, GitHub's passing into the hands of such a giant corporation has caused a bit of an upset. People are worried that Microsoft will fail GitHub and its underlying commitments to meritocracy, code-sharing, and sort of kind of digital socialism. It remains to be seen whether Microsoft will send GitHub the way of Skype, Office and Windows. If they can avoid such bumblings, then this acquisition should be a fantastic and much-needed move back towards popularity. If you had to become an inanimate object for a year, what object would you choose to be? (laughs) What are you thinking? I'm thinking a suitcase. A suitcase? Yeah. Why would you want to be a suitcase, dude? Because, I don't know, I would be travelling the whole time. Yeah, but you'd just be going from, like, a cupboard to a hotel room. Like, 
<laughs> and a plane horn. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing the world. Fucking freezing. Yeah. 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 You I don't know. A surfboard then. Yeah. 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 That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, okay. If you like water. Do you like water? I do like water. Mm. Social media companies are failing in the war on drugs. BuzzFeed News took a look at just how easy it is to find drugs and discovered that a quick search on every social media platform would turn up illegal drug sales. The companies have tools in place to filter out the most childishly obvious of listings. But these fail quickly when a bit of creativity is employed by sellers. Take Facebook, for example. The main search feature successfully filters out lots of illegal pharmacies. But if you instead filter for photos and events, then you'll find plenty. Liv Bainey, the founder and executive director of the Alliance for Safe Online Pharmacies, spoke to BuzzFeed, and I quote, Best case scenario, you get your credit card stolen. Worst case scenario, you get counterfeit cancer medicine. Instagram is taking aim at YouTube with a plan to allow long-form videos on the platform. As of now, uploaded videos on Instagram can be no longer than 60 seconds. But Facebook-owned Instagram are thinking of pushing this to 60 minutes. With hour-long videos on the social network, the opportunity for ad revenue will skyrocket and could draw many users away from sites like YouTube. Digital video advertising is already incredibly lucrative, and is expected to reach revenue of nearly $20 billion by 2020. If long video is to roll out on the platform, it is likely that the likes of you and me will remain limited in the early stages, and that only a handful of Instagram glitterati will be employed to produce long-format video series in the early days. Instagram declined to comment on the leak. Big tech companies the likes of Google and Facebook have been accused by some EU states of underpaying on their taxes by exploiting a system that is no longer fit for purpose. The companies are accused of shifting profits they make in high-tax European countries like France to low-tax countries like Luxembourg and Ireland. To stop this from happening and thus capture more benefit from big tech's European success, the EU Commission proposed a controversial and highly unusual plan in March. Instead of taxing profits, the new digital services tax would tax gross income, without any regard for whether the taxpaying company was making a profit or not. So far, the proposal has attracted a mediocre response from Germany and a smattering of criticism from smaller EU states. Now Nordic countries have come out in opposition of the digital tax and warned that it could have damaging consequences for the European economy. Instead, they call for global action and cooperation to overhaul the tax avoidance opportunities currently exploited by big tech. Welcome to this week's Long Listen. This week's Long Listen is written by Mr. Edward Fernihow and is an intelligently put-together piece of techie wordsmanship. Enjoy! 
In today's world, people seek to affirm their purportedly picture-perfect lives online. The currency in which we trade this affirmation exists in the form of follower counts, likes, retweets, shares, and whichever other methods of reaction developers give us. Most of us that use social media platforms are occasionally guilty of this vainly insecure self-advertisement, that we continue to publicize our lives online despite the narcissism, paranoia, and insecurity we know these networks cultivate simply serves to highlight just how dependent we, I, have become on them, how interwoven they are with our lives. The idea that digital media insidiously incites us to quantify our value as people according to the number of likes, connections and retweets they accrue, is not new. The problems they cause have been culturally recognised. Social media sites give us the abilities to share, curate and sometimes entirely fabricate aspects of our lives so publicly and so visually, inculcating within us the toxic habit of comparing our own self-impressions with the appearances of others. These hotbeds for unhealthy self-scrutiny disrupt constructive perceptions of our individualism and encroach upon the authenticity of the relationships we have with other people. As a result, many media outlets have reported extensively that this habit for comparison inflicts a mess of mental health problems upon us. So how else does digital media determine our image, our actions, our spending habits and our self-perceptions at present? In author of Sapiens and Homo Deus Yuval Harari's lecture, The Rise of Data Religion, he argues for the emergence of data religion. What he explains to be the combination of big data and smart machine learning tools designed to inform businesses and governments of a person's characteristics, habits and beliefs. To term Alexander Nix, former Cambridge Analytica chief exec, quote, Big data and psychographics could determine the personality of every single adult in the United States of America, end quote. This data is used by organizations to estimate a person's likely future behavior, both economically and politically. Consider companies that use data to develop marketing campaigns according to criteria certain groups of people satisfy, the ways that companies use ad space to market products and suggest digital content, the data they hold about you indicates you're likely to be interested in, and the role of relevance algorithms in the creation of the online echo chambers that minimize open dialogues conducive to the exchange of disparate points of view. Essentially, Harari expresses the view that it is possible for machines and programs to understand you better than you do yourself through data aggregation. He also implies that organizations can then use this information to determine future decisions. This is the alleged basis of Cambridge Analytica's role in influencing the outcome of the 2016 US election. Organizations can thus become the basis of socio-political authority by their abstruse influence of people's economic and political behavior. These people who have often unwittingly shared their data with the organizations in question. This is in contrast with the economic choices that we typically expect individual consumers to make and the political outcomes that are usually reached by majority vote, at least in democracies. But here's the rub. With current systems of digital determination and distinction, you can opt out, log out, close tabs and delete accounts. We have previously been able to create distance between ourselves and the social channels that can influence our habits. The wall we can currently still position between ourselves and external influences 
enables the retention of those secluded moments we use for independent, reflective decision-making. The greater the extent of our integration with digital spaces, however, the more vulnerable we become to the techniques third parties use online to embed habits in our psychology. When systems of real-time social ranking are posited by central governments that want to enforce them as methods of behavioural regulation, or when political parties pay data companies in the hope of manipulating electorates, things get a little bit f***ing dystopian. Digital totalitarianism is conspicuously possible. So is digitally driven corruption. Liberty is frequently defined as the lack of restrictions on action. The totalitarian lack of liberty can therefore be defined as the deliberate creation of a poverty of choice. This enforcement of a poverty of choice is currently afflicting people ruled by China's pilot social credit system. This system ranks citizens based on the quality of their interactions with other people, ranks people according to the ways in which they spend their time, and their own reputations can even be systematically affected by the official reputations of their closest social connections. A person's social score can, for example, be reduced by misbehaviour, including bad driving, what counts, smoking and non-smoking zones, are they always marked, buying too many video games, how many is too many and on what basis, posting fake news online, does the person know it is fake, and even insincere apologies. Throughout the pilot cities, 8.7 million flights and 3.4 million train journeys are alleged to have been blocked because of citizens' less than desirable social credit scores as of December 2017. Other penalties that individuals with unacceptable social credit scores suffer include prohibitions of access to four- and five-star hotels and prevention from admitting their children to selective schools. Prevention from admitting their children to selective schools. In other words, restricting the opportunities of the innocent. The social credit system thrives on big data, and much of it is based on biometric mass surveillance by the distribution of DNA samples, fingerprints, blood types, eye scans and facial recognition software. Socially encoded and enforced laws are the result of accretions of traditional and instinctive customs. We are prepared to sacrifice some of our liberty to the law with the purpose of protecting ourselves from criminal behaviour. We must here draw a distinction between behaviour a state considers criminal and behaviour socio-political entities consider conventional, customary and optimal. China's attempt to regulate behaviour through the biometric mass surveillance of the social credit system is an instance of attempting to enforce the latter. The behaviour the social credit system is trying to regulate is not always criminal, and the methods of measuring behaviour are deeply integrated with the private lives of individuals. Citizens are being constantly evaluated, and the relative evaluations or rankings of citizens can restrict their access to goods and services. As Tyler Grant wrote in his article featured in The Hill, quote, Under the guise of creating a utopia, China is now one of the most authoritarian and liberty-bereft societies on the planet. End quote. Now, this is not meant as an attack on China. It is meant as a warning against enabling governments the right to data, which can, and as shown is, used to influence behaviour by threatening your fiscal and social autonomy. It is meant as a warning against enabling companies access to data that, as evinced by Cambridge Analytica, is and will be used and distributed to political parties to covertly influence voting behaviour, a form of digital corruption erosive of just democracy. 
Finally, I suggest that our uses of technologies that are used to collect and aggregate data, then used to influence social behavior, ought to be checked by individual self-restraint, where disciplined use and disconnection are still possibilities. We are responsible for preventing the emergence of data-driven totalitarianisms from our own constitutions ourselves. If you could pick an emoji to best describe you, which one would it be, and why? It used to be like the, like you know, <clears throat> like crying out loud kind of emoji. But yeah, it's, it's way too vanilla now. I yeah, think. everyone's using it. Yeah, um, it's, it's overused. If something's yeah. funny, you've got to put like a hammer or something. Or yeah, like, yeah, something random. <laughs> Like a screw or something. Yeah. <laughs> Just find the most niche emoji. Yeah. I like the the little demon. Uh, the little the little red guy. Yeah, no the little like purple one. The purple demon. You mean yeah. the, the eggplant? No no no. <laughs> no, the the, the the purple like like purple this, this the, the smiling one though. It's like it's a cheeky one. That's like kinky dude. No, it's cheeky. Yeah, it's a kinky little devil. Really? I think he's a little Well kinky. I guess I like being kinky though. <laughs> <laughs> Kitty Hawk, the mysterious flying car startup backed by Google founder Larry Page and led by Sebastian Thrun, who helped set up Google's self-driving car projects, revealed impressive progress this week. Its newly updated flyer vehicle is now open for test flights for people who may be interested in pre-ordering. It takes just one hour to be taught how to fly the vehicles and is apparently extremely intuitive, using just two joysticks. For now, the speeds and height are limited, with Rachel Crane from CNN becoming the first reporter allowed to test out the flyer and reaching a top speed of 6 miles per hour at a top height of 10 feet. For now, the tests are being carried out over water in Las Vegas, and the craft isn't all that practical. The lithium polymer battery powers 10 motors, which eat through the energy reserves in a mere 20 minutes. Kitty Hawk CEO told CNN that, and I quote, The number one most important thing, other than safety for us, is societal acceptance. Will people be willing to fly on these devices? Be willing to live next to these devices like this? That's why we open this training facility in Lake Las Vegas. We're here to learn from you, to see your reaction, end quote. Personally, I can easily imagine a future where cars leave our crowded streets and take to the skies. Imagine reclaiming roads and making them into leafy walkways. It could be a beautiful techtopian future. There's some interesting Airbnb news coming out of Sydney, Australia, that could have implications for the home-sharing economy world over. Tough new restrictions in Australia's largest state have limited Airbnb hosts to having guests for no more than 180 nights a year. This legislation will ensure that properties are homes first and foremost, and whole neighbourhoods of purely short-term lets don't grow and spread. In order to fight the party houses problem, where properties are rented out for, you guessed it, large parties, apartment residents will be able to vote on Airbnb usage in their building. 
If over 75% of the dwellers vote against Airbnb, then it will be totally vetoed and banned from their buildings. This puts a lot of pressure on hosts to make sure that their guests don't misbehave at the expense of their neighbours. Lyft, the moustached Uber competitor, are committed to reducing their carbon footprint. As part of this commitment, they have totally redesigned their app to put emphasis on ride sharing. Instead of encouraging journeygoers to travel alone, they'll more visibly suggest the rider joins a group of strangers on their travels. Lyft will also be rolling out algorithm changes that push users to take short walks to quiet side streets instead of requesting pickups on busy main roads. They hope that this will combat congestion. This is all good stuff. I've taken Uber pools a few times, which are Uber's equivalent ride-sharing random stranger option. And to be honest, they've generally been pretty fun. Granted, it has also been pretty weird at times, but as long as it's safe, who cares if you're sitting next to Cosplay Aragon, a fresh-off-the-pitch football hobbyist, and some hotshot lawyer. What's something that many people fear that doesn't scare you at all? (laughs) Um... I don't know. I guess growing old. Well, you don't. You're not scared of it. No, I, I actually find it kind of exciting. The time, the fact that I don't want to sound depressing, but that things are going to come to an end at some point. Yeah. And that you know, like what you're living now, obviously, like in ten years, you'll be on a different, like, in a different, like, state of mind and different, like, stage of your life. Stage of your life. It is no secret that Tesla have been struggling with Model 3 production, their affordable electric car offering. Elon himself has repeatedly called the production process hellish and the car startup have been plagued by over-automation, over-ambition and general naivety. On Tuesday, Musk told shareholders that he expects Model 3 production to be at 5,000 units per week by the end of June. That's a big step up from the current estimated production of circa 2,500 a week and, if sustained, would be a massive victory for the embattled electric car company. In other Tesla news, it looks like the company are wasting a hell of a lot of raw materials in the creation of their cars. Business Insider reviewed internal documents and estimate that scrap at Tesla's Gigafactory may have cost the company somewhere in the region of $150 million. Ouch. Apple hosted their developer conference this week, in which the tune was software, software, software. No new hardware was announced, no new iPhone SE 2, no new iPad X, and perhaps most unfortunately, no new MacBooks. The MacBook line is really quite aged at this point, using processes that lag far behind those available today. Instead of deluging us with new hardware, as Apple so often do, it seems they are making the subtle transition towards device longevity. They are encouraging us to hang on to our iPhones, iPads, and Apple emblazoned laptops for a little bit longer. Improvements in iOS 12 to the efficient running and booting of apps, the ability to understand and dissect your screen time for the benefit of your human health, and a general move towards being altogether less intrusively addictive to our lives is admirable from Apple. Remember, they are not sullied by the demands of advertising companies. Their profits come from selling their product and maintaining a devout followership, not from capturing our maximum attention. Brand image is everything for Apple, and then comes performance. For now, the latter is being neglected to an extent, but that's fine for a little longer. 
and an appropriate point of rebasing. And it's done. It's over. You can open your eyes now. Take it all in. Hopefully the tech world around you makes a bit more sense. You're all caught up. If you enjoyed the show, then please share the zip files with a friend. If you hated it, then please share it with an enemy. Also, sorry to be hashtag that guy, but if you're feeling bright and breezy, happy and friendly, then rating the zip files five stars on Apple Podcasts would help me out massively. I love you all. Until next Sunday, enjoy your oat milk lattes and have a great week. <laughs>